and welcome to Panorama. I'm your co-host, Dan Torres, and I am here with Sarah Robertson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Dan. Who do we have on the show today? Oh, we have a special guest, and I'm really excited to talk to with J.M. Sorrell, who is the director of Mass Death with Dignity. And is What's that? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. I know. It's a topic that we sometimes don't like to discuss, and I want to know why. And uh, I hope we can get in it with J.M. So, J.M., thank you for coming on Panorama. My pleasure, Sarah and Dan. Um, and, yeah, the, the why is a really good question, good leading question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think people, we, we somehow think we can cheat death. And if we talk about it, maybe it won't happen, or maybe it will happen if we talk about it too much. But, you know, the, the, the reality is that one thing that every human being has in common is our mortality. Mm. And, um, and in other cultures, I think people talk about it more openly and therefore have less fear approaching the topic of death or how somebody sees, um, uh, makes meaning of their death. Mm. Um, we don't do that so much in American society. Um, we try to um, cheat, you know, aging. You see a lot of anti-aging ads and encouragement to stay young, stay young, stay young. Um, but on the other hand, people, I think everybody probably shares in common that they want the most peaceful death possible or they want some autonomy or control over death when it is possible. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, what is Massachusetts Death with Dignity? What are you what are you trying to promote? So Massachusetts Death with Dignity is an organization that was created several years ago before I was on board to help promote legislation for medical aid in dying. It's often erroneously called physician assisted suicide, but that's not what it is. The idea of medical aid in dying is that if you are in a situation and you are aware and can and are competent to make the choice um, and you have a terminal illness of six months or less to live, you can choose some medication to hasten the process. Mm. Are you trying to pass a bill? Uh, you know, I was doing some research last night and it seems like there is a bill called S1331. Tell us what that would do. So yeah, there are two, two bills, one in the Senate and one in the House, and they have both been presented to the Joint Committee on Public Health at this point. So that's, that's where it lies right now. Um, we anticipate having a public hearing about this, and hopefully there will be um, a vote in the legislature in this session. What is outlined in the bill, and if you if you read it, you can see that it's fairly detailed, are what the steps are the steps that would that one would need to take in order to access medical aid in dying. It's not simple. You really have to go through some hoops in terms of um, doctor's permission, um, making sure that a psychiatrist or psychologist has chimed in, that you are making um, this decision of your own free will, and that you do have really crucially you have that terminal diagnosis of six months or less to live. Let me ask you this. Why do you support? I mean, what got you motivated into supporting uh, this movement? You could have done, I mean, a bunch of other issues. Why this one? Well, I used to run an ombudsman program for 14 years advocating for older adults in long-term care facilities. I also served on the ethics committee at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. So I was around death and dying. That influenced me greatly, um, as well as my own parents' um, illnesses and deaths. And, I've, and I have seen 
up close what happens when people don't have the choice to end their suffering or they haven't completed paperwork that would suggest they don't want um, full measures to save their lives and they end up suffering more than they need to and so I feel, I just, I think I feel also as a progressive and a feminist that people should have autonomy mm. and choice. And that's the most important time. It's, it's interesting to me that people are against this in some way because people are largely not against our free will and choices in American society throughout our lives. But at the most important time to have that ability to make a choice, somehow people have a problem with that. And- the idea of medical aid and dying is really at odds with like the way we approach healthcare in this country in general. Again, there's like that denial, like if we don't talk about death, we can fight it till the very end. And and I, I remember hearing that something like as as much as ninety percent of someone's healthcare costs throughout their life can be in the last weeks and months of their life. I, I just how, so how do we change the way that the healthcare industry views dying to make it more pleasant experience for people, if that's the right word. So, Sarah, if you have me talking about the healthcare industry in this country, we will be here all day. I'm also a big supporter of um, universal health care, and we are the only industrialized country where we who, who doesn't have that. And so, um, there's such disparity in healthcare. We have the greatest technology and potential um, for people to live healthy lives, and yet we have dismal mortality rates. Our, um, our maternal birth rates are, are, are dismal compared to the technology we have. So why is that the case? Well, because profit is a big part of the medical industry. When you said that 90% of your healthcare costs happen in the last six months of your, um, before you die, that's a fact. I mean, that's, that's been documented and it seems crazy, frankly. But what happens is people swoop in and you get more CAT scans and you get more chemotherapy. Even if you're dying, you get more, all kinds of interventions because there's money to be made. I hate to sound so callous about it. I also believe there are individual doctors and practitioners who mean well, but the system is set up for greed. And let's let's talk a little bit about the other states in America that have passed this. I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it would be Oregon. But can you tell us um, what have those states done and how, what can Massachusetts learn from them? There are 10 states plus the District of Columbia um, who have passed medical aid and dying protections. Mm-hmm. And ours is really closely aligned with Hawaii's, which is, is kind of the most stringent in terms of the way the bill is written to make sure there are safeguards and protections and that people don't abuse um, the option of medical aid and dying. Um, what's really interesting, Dan, is that there are no documented cases of people being exploited or abused at all. You know, there, you see people with disabilities, um, there are individuals with disabilities who are very much supportive of this, but a lot of organizations um, contest this. And yet there's not been one documented case um, since Oregon many years ago first um, enacted this of um, anybody of this being used to exploit or, or try to end someone's life um, against their will. Yeah. And what, I mean, I guess, what is the, I'm not asking you to, to speak for those who oppose this, but what are the oppositions to this? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand, is it that some people could be taken advantage of, even though they're, let's say, infirm and they're unable to uh, make maybe the, the right decisions for their healthcare so somebody else is making it and they can be terminating somebody else's life? I'm trying to understand what would be the opposition to this. 
Well, I'm also, I've been an advocate for people with disabilities. I consider myself a strong advocate for people with disabilities because if I've been working with older adults all these years, I've obviously worked with people with disabilities. Um, I think it's an antiquated notion that someone with a disability doesn't have the capacity or dignity to be able to make their own choice at end of life. I think um, there's this, the, it's, it's sort of like this old eugenics theory that, you know, people will be gotten rid of who aren't um, perfectly able-bodied or, um, or something like that. And I think it is antiquated and I think it's demeaning to people with disabilities. So I see it in a very opposite way. But, um, but some of the disability organizations will say that they're afraid that, um, that there'll be some form of experimentation or exploitation for people with disabilities. From the, the other big opposition is the Catholic Church. Mm. Um, and the Catholic Church sees it as a moral issue and very, very similar to how they see reproductive rights. Mm. And, um, and they, um, and again, and I'm a recovering Catholic, I was raised Catholic. And I can say that I think there's some hypocrisy there because um, like they say, you know, it's God's, you know, someone should die under God's will. Well, I don't know if God is the one keeping people alive with all the machinery and all of the other ways that people um, have medical interventions. Is that God? Mm. Um, and then it's not God. And then, you know, it's not God when you make your own decision to um, to have medical aid and dying. So um, I think the arguments are getting weaker in our society as we progress. Um, we used to have the... Um, um, medical organizations, doctors and nurses organizations used to oppose this. They're now either neutral or in favor of this. Well, you know, I wanted to touch on something you said at the beginning, um, which was uh, other countries are willing to take on this issue much earlier and they're more free to talk about it. And I find that to be interesting. You know, I think a lot of European countries have had this on the books for many years now. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can come just touch this, a touch on the issue of you know, what is it within American culture itself that makes it not want to discuss this issue, uh, unlike other cultures? Wow, that's a can of worms. I think I think part of it is capitalism. <laughs> I know that we have such an ultra uh, ultra capitalist society. Um, you know, the anti aging industry mm. is huge. Mm -hmm. um, the the medical industrial complex to keep people alive at all costs is huge. Mm -hmm. So that's not the case in countries that have universal health care mm -hmm. and countries that have less disparity of wealth. Um, mm -hmm. Western Europe, this is this is legal in every Western European country. This is not the same thing as Switzerland, where it's legal to have physician assisted suicide as well. This is simply medical aid and dying. And a lot of those countries, if you think of it, are com composed of um, people who identify as Catholic, but they are a little more advanced at separating church and state than we are. I think Switzerland has actually had a, what was called uh, assisted suicides legalized since like the 1940s. Like it's been, it's been a long time. And then the Netherlands also have medical aid and dying, but also assisted suicide. So it's it's there are places that are really, I don't know, go, going much further than what we're even talking about here. And, and there's lots of really thorny ethical issues there, I'm sure. There are, but I, I do want to say, even when you sign on for medical aid and dying, you can change your mind. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you can sign up for it, you can get the prescription, and you don't need to take it. 
and we are talking about the proposed law that would make it legal um, for people to choose medical aid in dying. And the act of choosing medical aid in dying, it's a bit of a scary question, but this bill really lays out some of the specifics and really keeps the autonomy um, in the hands of the person who is choosing to die. So, J.M., could you please tell us a bit about what specifics the bill lays out and how people can make this decision on their own? Well, you know, and it, it doesn't account for people who, if somebody has dementia um, or has some inability cognitively to make this choice, um, that person would likely be disqualified. So there, there are a lot of disqualifiers to this. But if you are... Um, making this choice of your free will and your sound mind, the choice is yours. The medicine that you get prescribed does need to be ingested by you. You can't have even a family member insert pills in your throat or something like that. Like that's really, when you say the autonomy rests with you, it does all the way to the, to the very end. Right. So, and so that's what it is. It's a prescription that is that is given by a doctor, they pick it up, someone can choose to um, take it in their own homes, be with their loved ones um, while they're dying. How about the process of deciding who qualifies for medical aid in dying, as outlined in this bill? I know there are cognitive tests, which you mentioned earlier, um, and then there are also safeguards to make sure that no one is being taken advantage of financially, if that's the case. Yeah. Yes, yeah, the safeguards are plentiful. And, and I think a really important point is someone is dying anyway. When, when people um, who might oppose this, um, I don't think they fully understand the bill sometimes. You have to have a diagnosis of six months or less to live. You are going to die, in other words. That's really an important point to make. You're not creating a death. The death is inevitable. Um, so that is, um, I think, a primary component of this bill, along with the, um, you know, making sure that you are mentally fit and that two doctors sign off on this. And if you have a primary care doctor who doesn't believe in this or doesn't want to, the doctors also have the choice to participate or not. That's important too. Some medical practitioners might not want to participate in this. So you can choose or find doctors who will. I'm curious to know if you can just talk about the pain that some people endure in during those six months. I mean, there are some, some times where you're towards the end of your life and you're living with that constant pain. Can you talk a little bit about how this also can uh, impact that? Well, I have a a friend who's a palliative care doctor, um, Dr. Jeff Sessinger, he and I were on Bill Newman's show a couple of months ago. You know, he always talks about the emotional component of pain and that even just having the medication, whether you take it or not, can greatly assist with that, that you know that you can end your suffering. Because I, I don't think our emotional life is disconnected from our physical health. So, um, and everybody experiences pain differently. This is as individual a choice as anything else in our lives. Um, you know, some people have a high tolerance for pain. And um, and depending on what it is you have, what your physical illness is, you know, you might not have a lot of pain. A lot of people who are proponents of this, I will say, the ALS society, you know, that's, that's a really painful way to die. And so we, you know, I... There's somebody in our coalition, which is the End of Life Options Massachusetts Coalition, who is a director of 
of one of those organizations. So, you know, some not everybody feels pain when they're dying either. This, this isn't necessary for everyone. This is an option for people to end suffering if they, if they need to. And I'm fascinated by the fact that we tend to give the individual excessive amount of rights, especially in America. And it's fascinating to me that you get it all the way up until this point about life. And I just, I, to me, I, I do find it, I, I don't know if hypocritical is the right word, but I do find it interesting that like you are given an excessive amount of choices and options. And what I'm hearing from you is this is just the choice. It may work for some, it may not work for many others who maybe are going to end their life, but they get to choose or not choose. I mean, I, I tend to think that eventually this will grow in uh, the number of states. You said 10. I also read somewhere that Joe Comerford, our, our state senator, has, has been a, a big proponent of this. Am I correct? Oh, yeah. She's, she's probably our most important leader in the legislature on this. Um, so what I would say, what, what you said about the autonomy, though, and making the choice throughout your life, I, I kind of use this... Um, half jokingly that, you know, we allow people to do crazy things like skydiving and downhill skiing. And, um, and those are things that can end in disaster, but nobody's trying to stop those activities and all kinds of other extreme sports, right? And yet when somebody needs the choice over their own life the most, we say, no, you can't have it. It makes no sense to me either, Dan. Tell us a little bit about the organization. I mean, are you trying to raise money? Is it about raising awareness? Where are you right now in the fight to get this passed here in Massachusetts? Well, we we have many, many. If you've went on the website, you can see, and anybody can go on the on the legislature website and look at the bill. We have many co-sponsors, both in the sponsors and co-sponsors in the Senate and the House. I think we have the votes that are needed if this went to the floor. Um, we believe that. The governor has said she will sign it. She said this before she was inaugurated. If it comes to her, she believed that it should be handled legislatively and that she would sign the bill if it came to her desk. We weren't so sure about that with Governor Baker. Mm. Boston Globe endorsed this for the first time, not just running articles, but actually on their editorial board endorsed this back in December. We have a lot of things. I think the momentum is really, really good. But as you know, in the Massachusetts legislature, a lot, there are complications and bureaucracy. And so, you know, everybody's pushing for their bills to move forward and, and we're no different. We have basically, our organization has basically helped to co-found the coalition I mentioned, the End of Life Options Massachusetts Coalition with the Compassion and Choices people who cover Massachusetts and the National Death with Dignity Organization. And so we are, our, our little organization, which we have maybe 2,000 members who we send newsletters out to regularly, we're, we're folding into the coalition eventually. We won't exist in the way that we do now. We've all been volunteers. So we have raised money in the past. We're no longer raising money. We just use whatever small funds we have for expenses. And it's very, very grassroots. Do and we do advocacy and education. We, we've helped people to write written testimony and to, um, and to advocate. We, we coach people to advocate with their legislatures on, legislators on this. How long has the Death with Dignity movement been active in Massachusetts? I, I get the sense that it started out in the Oregon area because that's where one of the first laws was passed. But how long have, has it been around? That's a great question, Sarah. And I'm not sure that I can answer it exactly correctly. I know it was a ballot question in 2012, but it was an issue here 
and we only and we only lost by 1.5 percent in you know over 10 years ago so this should be passing by now but i'm not sure what led up to the ballot question i wasn't involved or engaged in it so directly at that point but i would say for at least 20 years this has been in play in massachusetts well that's great and if somebody wants to learn more about this to uh, educate themselves or reach out or see what's going on now, um, where should they go? Who should they reach out to? Well, they can write to me at all lowercase Massachusetts death with dignity at gmail.com. They can go to the end of life options Massachusetts website and learn about what's going on currently with the legislature. They can also go on directly on the legislature site like you did and, and look at the bills. There are lots of us who are available um, who can coach, who can guide, who can support um, whatever um, somebody feels inclined to do to support the cause. How about people who are considering this medical choice to perhaps end their life? Um, what kind of resources are available to them? Well, I've had some, I'm glad you asked that, Sarah, because I've had some difficult calls to me from people who have terminal illnesses, and this is not a legal right in Massachusetts right now, and I have to give them that news. A lot of people, as an alternative, will stop eating or drinking. That's like um, one of the things people can can do. That's not the most painful way to die, believe it or not, depending on how it's handled. But it's still not. It's not the same. It's you don't have the same level of control. So Vermont is the one New England state where people from out of state can go. They just increase their bill to allow for that. But that's not convenient. That means you can't die in your own home or your own um, long-term care facility or wherever you are if you have to go to Vermont. And that, of course, involves money as well. But that's the nearest option, I would say, for people who live in Massachusetts at the current moment. We are speaking with J.M. Sorrell. She is the director of Massachusetts Death with Dignity, a healthcare advocate, a columnist, a commentator, woman of many talents, you could say. I, I wanted to ask you, J.M., about some of your work as a healthcare advocate in general for people who are aging, and some of the columns that you've written about these topics in the Gazette. Yeah, I have, um, Sarah, been a healthcare advocate or I've worked in public health in one way or another over the last 20, 25 years. When I when I ran the ombudsman program for in, at Highland Valley Elder Services years ago, I, um, I wrote guest columns occasionally about big pharma or death and dying, uh, dementia and dignity and things like that. I also happened to write some guest columns around LGBT issues. I was the spokesperson for NoHo Pride for years. And then at one point in um, 2018, Brooke Hauser, who was then the editor-in-chief, said, you know, you want to be a monthly columnist. And I was, I was ready. Well, that's very fascinating. I mean, the reason why I invited you on is because I was fascinated by your most recent article written in the Daily Hampshire Gazette, published on September 5th of this year. And what makes, uh, at least in my view, uh, you to be a very interesting thinker is what you wrote here in this article. And I'm just going to read it very quickly. You wrote, it can be exhausting to engage in critical thinking and to listen to and learn from others who challenge your world view and your plans for activist work. However, without it, growth is stunted and opportunities are lost. People and identity groups who simply reinforce positions may risk morphing into herd slash mob mentality. And I, you know, I'm fascinated by that because you really strive to be an independent thinker. And I think of many ways this death of dignity fits in exactly with that. 
Tell us about independent thinking and what do you think is maybe wrong also with American culture today regarding independent thinking and group thinking specifically? Wow. I mean, this is another thing where we could spend a whole day or a week on this. Um, and I wish I was a PhD sociologist. Um, given the question, the heavy question you just asked, I, um, you know, I don't think it's just American culture. Um, I think every culture probably has some form of group adherence or, or uh, mob mentality um, in some segment or another. I think it's really escalated in our country in recent years. People are choosing this idea of loyalty to the group versus loyalty to your own ethical core. And I, I, it's, it's indicative in our two-party system where, you know, you look, at, look right now at what's going on with not being able to get a, a, a new federal budget. You know, everyone's so loyal to either being a Democrat or a Republican that, that they just vote along party lines. It's a really great example of, of some form of group think or mob mentality. Yeah. And I think we pay the consequences for that. You know, I think independent thinking is, is difficult sometimes because you'll go against the grain. And I wonder if you could touch a little bit more on that. When people stand out from the group, sometimes they might get ridiculed or mocked. And I, I think it's hard for people to stand alone as an individual. We kind of want to feel like we belong to a group, right? That collective sense kind of connects us to other human beings and humans are social beings, right? It just distill that a little bit. I know you got some sociology in you. So talk a little bit about that. I do, and um, I think I was. A, I have a. I have a retired sociology professor who said I was always organically um, a sociologist, and I just didn't know it. I would say to that, you just you touched upon some very, I would say, poignant issues around wanting to belong and feel included, and not wanting to feel cast out. I go back in my own life to my childhood. I moved around a, a lot, which helped me. Um, learn to adapt to new situations, even if it was difficult. So I kind of have that skill. I don't need to stay stuck in other words, but at the same time, I felt like odd woman out in a lot of situations. Um, if not for team sports, it might've been more difficult for me, but I've never been capable of adhering to a group for the sake of being part of a group. It's just not in me. Now, there's a price to pay. I mean, I think you touched upon that, Dan, because, you know, gr the, the group demands group loyalty, like at no matter what, like that should be primary. I think a group can serve really well if the group is engaged with a di diverse, um, com composed of diverse people right. who... Um, who can enhance each other's growth. But if there's one just mode of thinking and doing, that's where I say the growth is stunted. And, um, and the reinforcement just creates an endless cycle of staying stuck. Hmm. And I think one of the things that like group mentality prevents is just the ability to change your mind or be wrong. Like that's such an important human skill to be like, to self-reflect and to change. I don't know. And, and you yeah, and nobody in these days politically, nobody's wrong. I mean, you know, Trump is obviously the extreme example of never being wrong about anything. But humility is lacking in all, I think, segments: the left, the center, and the right. Politically, people aren't owning their mistakes, and I do think that's a dangerous way for society to operate because we all make mistakes. We all put our feet in our mouth. Um, I've certainly done my fair share, but you have to flex that muscle of owning it 
and learning from it. And if you don't flex that muscle, you're just so fearful of it that you just dig your heels in more and more and more and you, and you stick to your point no matter what. Right. As and long as you have a group behind you, you can never fail. Right. Exactly. I also wanted to read the end of your article here is another part that I found very fascinating here. You said, you write, a totalitarian modus operandi is not limited to the obvious culprits such as Hitler, Mussolini, or Pinochet. Each of us is capable of descending into mob mentality. Just this, each of us is responsible to think and act as an individual with integrity. If one is unwilling to risk the loss of a group membership, one is not in a healthy group. And so my question is, you know, wow, that that last line of if you're unwilling to, to lose that group membership, you're not in a healthy group. Tell me why groupthink is so dangerous, you think, for, for society at large. Well, when you take it to extreme, you look at genocides that have been created um, and justified, whether through religious bigotry or, or political um, fascism. That's happened throughout all of history that we that we know of. And so taken to its extreme, people, I think people must rewire their brains to maybe believe mm -hmm. even what's going on. I mean, the Holocaust is a really obvious example of people in all these countries. It wasn't just the Germans. The Germans didn't just decide one day we're gonna be evil. All these countries capitulated and lots of people were handing over Jews and, um, and knowing they were going to their deaths. How did people, justify that morally or ethically well they had to decide that they were stamping out evil it's really interesting it's like you have to flip your switch mm. and you know that's that's so fascinating when you're talking it made me think about the importance of being a dissenter of being an individual and willing to dissent because many times if you do that you do risk something that we've been talking about now from the beginning of this episode is your life your life, right. again, is at risk when you decide to dissent, especially against a group. And you've been talking about, you know, the Holocaust and the genocides that happen all around the world. That is a risk that individuals probably have to take if they want to dissent against the group, right? And I don't want to trivialize that. I don't know what I would do. I think when I was younger, I used to say, oh, I'd be in the resistance. You know, everybody <laughs> would love to be in the resistance. But... I don't know what I would do to survive. I know one thing I wouldn't do is hand in other people. Mm. I know, I know in my heart that's a line I could not step over. I'd have to leave a situation at least or get out rather than do that. But what would I do to survive? I don't know. It's a horrible situation to be put in, but it is really scary to think about these mobs. You know, we have that now with the uh, MAGA people, right? Or the Proud Boys or, you know, all the splinter groups that are really overtly fascist, racist, and misogynist, and, and they're thriving. And we're talking with J.M. Sorrell, the director of Massachusetts Death with Dignity, and we want to highlight, J.M., your life here in Northampton. You've lived here now for a couple decades. Tell us, what attracted you to Northampton? Why did you come to Northampton? Well, thanks for saying a couple. It's more like four uh, decades. I came here in 1982. Time flies. You know, it was a friend, a friend of mine was coming back to Hampshire College. I didn't even know what Hampshire College was. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky. I had come out as a lesbian a couple years prior to that. And I was really kind of not, I was a little listless and, um, and open. Um, luckily, I, like I said, I had moved around a lot as a kid. So when someone said, do you want to go to Northampton? I said, sure. And I did. Um, knowing I could go back if I needed to, and I didn't. I got a job at the women's bookstore called Women Fire, um, which is on Center Street, half of 
with the Iron Horses now. And it was the first women's bookstore in town. And really, I didn't know that would be the ideal lesbian job, but it was because I met everybody and people all really, you know, well-known authors who came to speak and musicians and, you know, performers, et cetera. So I, I think my feminist awakening happened then. I had come out as a lesbian, but not particularly as a feminist. And, um, and there was really no going back. I got involved with the early pride marches um, and all kinds of political activities. You, you say that being a feminist is important to your identity. Can you explain that to us? Thank you. I would say my core, it's funny. And as I've grown older, I am more self-aware that my core identity is as a feminist more than anything else. I'm an anti-racism activist and trainer, LGBT cultural competence trainer, environmentalist. You know, there are a lot of um, social justice issues that I believe in um, strongly, economic justice as well. But my to me, my feminism is is the springboard for all of that. And I can even look back to, it's funny, yesterday I was at Smith College at the Ms. Magazine 50th anniversary celebration because Gloria Steinem is an alum. And, and that really just reinforced for me the importance of looking beyond your own identity and your own perhaps group to expand yourself for other justice issues. Gloria Steinem did that famously as a white woman in the late 60s and early 70s. And I think she's a role model for me. She worked with farmers. She worked with anti-racism groups. She she worked in all kinds of social justice circles. I kind of wanted you to also discuss to discuss the the women's bookstore here in Northampton. I mean, what was that like? There was actual feminist bookstore here in Northampton. And there wasn't just one, right? Uh, if I'm correct, can you share a little bit more about right. that? That was around for, I think, a decade or more. And then there was one called the Lunaria on King Street. It was the second one after that but you know the times were so different like imagine a bookstore where if a man walked in everybody said what's he doing here (laughs) because back then a woman's bookstore a feminist bookstore really was for women primarily and and men wouldn't even dream of necessarily going going into it so you know it was really a central meeting place for feminists for women to critically discuss issues and organize for whatever causes they were working on. So it was a really important meeting place other than bars where a lot of lesbians and gay men famously met for a long, long time. And thus the rates of alcoholism were much higher in those communities. Unlike a bar, this was a a place that was, I think, open and welcoming for people, for women of all ages, for sure. And of course, there's lots of literature. It's a bookstore. So you're reading and learning and growing and all of those things. Mm. And also challenging the establishment, I'm sure, that still existed at that time in Northampton. I mean, was Northampton always a more progressive place? or It was progressive then when you, when you related to the rest of the country, right? Mm. For me, I mean, I don't know what it was like in the 70s. I wasn't here. But in the 80s, it was still far more progressive than um, most other parts of the country, especially for a small town. That's what was unusual. Like you, you take your San Francisco, New York, Atlanta, Chicago, and they have, you know, lots of lesbian, gay, you know, activists and elements. But here we were a pretty rural part of the country and we have this really progressive niche. We had we had threats against the store. People would threaten violence. But on our street, Judith Fine, who owned the gazebo and Jordy Harold, who owned the Iron Horse, 
it would come to our store to say, we're here if you need us, if you need to be walked to your cars, if you feel unsafe in any way. We had allies at a time when that wasn't a common thing to have. This is 40 years ago. But did we have um, problems? Sure. When we marched at our annual marches, we looked to see if there were dangerous people around. We even looked on roofs. And we certainly had naysayers at the time as well. But I think having the five colleges and the arts and the intellect in the area um, really have made it what it is. And talk a little bit about Smith College. That also added to the identity as well, didn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, the lesbian college, right? Um, And Mount Holyoke, the two women's colleges. So, And people who graduated from those colleges, some of them, when they started to figure out there was this uh, naturally occurring lesbian community, they stayed in the area instead of going back home. Um, Same with UMass, people who... um, who majored in women's studies in particular. So yeah, the women's colleges certainly made a big a big difference in um, creating this uh, thing that we called Lesbianville. So you were a part of a Lesbianville, you're part of this community, but individual thought and not adhering to any, <laughs> any mob mentalities is important to you. So how have you maintained this independence after being part of such a progressive group? That's such a great question, sir. I was just laughing to myself because I was thinking, here I come, and for, generationally, I was really into very cool music, Jethro Tull, Led Zeppelin, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and everybody's playing all this women's music. And when I had the stir on Sundays, sometimes I would be playing Led Zeppelin, and you know, women would walk in like, what's going on here in the stir with Led Zeppelin? So even then I thought, well, this is my music taste. You know, I don't have to listen to just women's music. So I've always kind of been that way, not on purpose, it's just who I am. So I didn't necessarily always fit into a slot in lesbian circles or feminist circles or progressive circles, even back then, I think we were more bonded because of adversity, you know? And so whatever differences we might have were less important than um, helping each other to feel safe and affirmed. So we had that sense of community. I think the identity politics dissipated as people were able to feel safe In other communities they might identify with, for instance, people who had kids would hang out with their heterosexual, you know, counterparts with kids. And so interest as the the community became more progressive, it became less important to to feel safe in in our little enclave. And how do you feel that compares to today? Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying that, you know, I think people are now, we, the, I always say the price of integration is, you know, is diluting of um, identity politics. When I started, and I'm a justice of the peace, and I started marrying people from out of state, um, when we were the only state where um, same-sex marriage was legal, and people would come and say, well, where's your community center? Or where's your women's bookstore or your, your, your bar? And I was like, we don't have that. And people wouldn't understand that. Like they think they needed a meeting place. And I would have to explain people are just living their lives um, authentically. Like we don't have such a forced um, community because we are so um, integrated into a more expansive. Um, well, we've been talking with J.M. Sorrell who is the director of the Massachusetts Death with Dignity. Learn more about them online. Um, What was the email again? MassachusettsDeathWithDignity at gmail.com. There you go. You could always reach out to them to learn more. Uh, JM is a monthly columnist with the Daily Hampshire Gazette. 
He's a Northampton local for many years, involved in a lot of social justice struggles. Here on Panorama with me, your co-host Dan Torres and Sarah Robertson. Well, JM, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. You guys are wonderful. Thank you, Sarah and Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm.